Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here this evening. And God, we pray as we look into your word that our hearts will be open and attentive. And God, I pray that we will hear, God, the message that you have for us and how we need to respond to it. Knowing that, that any time your word is looked into with, with sincerity, that you have something to say to us. We love you and we praise your name. Amen. Let's give Josh and Corey and Joshua a hand for helping us out this evening. How many of you like to wait? W, not wait like way, but none of you like that. But W-A-I-T, how many of you enjoy that? If you do, we're going to talk about lying next week. There is a, and I think it's an urban myth of, of that we spend three years of our life waiting, and I don't think that that's uh, that's not been verified by any scientific study. But we do spend a lot of time waiting. If you're taking notes, in New York City, they are infamous for the longest waits in line. The, the average wait, if you're at a grocery store, at a convenience store. Uh, are at a retail store to check out. It's about six minutes and 51 seconds to, uh, uh, to, to get out in New York City, average wait. Now, I'm, I think places here in Ruston, it may be worse, but they didn't come to Ruston and check that out, right? Uh, average doctor visits, 24 minutes in America. Uh, average emergency room visit, it takes you about four hours and seven minutes of waiting to uh, to be told to go see your doctor tomorrow. So I'm joking a little bit there. Y'all are not very, y'all in a bad mood. I was going to talk out of Acts, but we'll turn to Luke 16 and talk about hell tonight since, um, since that. But tonight I, I want us to talk about waiting on God. Waiting on God. We're in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And, you know, as tough as it is to wait at a grocery store or a convenience store or certainly the emergency room to wait on God, uh, it can be very brutal. And as I, as I worked on this message this week, uh, you know, I, I obviously I didn't know who was going to be here. I, I suspected my staff would be if they wanted to get paid, but everybody else that's up in the air. But I don't know where you are in your life right now. Some of you are in a holding pattern with God. You're waiting on God. And some of you don't know this, but you're going to be there real soon. So I think that uh, it's either very apropos for you this evening or it will be in the future. So I hope that God will speak to you. What do we do while we're waiting on God? Number one, we obey God. We, we, what do you do when you're waiting on God? You obey God. In Acts chapter 1, we've been in this for a few weeks, talking about our roots as a church, our roots as Christian. Look in verse 4. While staying with them, this is the resurrection of Jesus, he had ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, you have heard from me. So they're with Jesus, and he tells them, hey, I want you to wait. Now, go to verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus has given them the great commission. Isn't that great? They were motivated now. I mean, they had been given some tremendous words. Verse 9, 
And when he said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, Jesus is ascended back to heaven. I mean, think of, all, think of being a part of all this. You're, you're with him, and he's telling you, hey, you got to wait. The Holy Spirit's coming. Okay, we blow that off. Wait, whatever, whatever, you know. Uh, man, the Great Commission, you've given us our marching orders. Now we're looking up, and Jesus is, is going back to heaven, and they're getting to witness it all. And then go to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, that's the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, I want to show you some pictures because I think they're pretty and they're interesting of of, uh, the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is... uh, not far from from um, Jerusalem, obviously. This is a picture probably from around the temple. That's the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is kind of a long ridge in here. We have another picture looking from the Mount of Olives. That's, uh, that's not Jesus, by the way, as far as I know. And uh, that looking from the Mount of Olives back towards Jerusalem. And that's where the, uh, the, the, the temple would have been, which is now a mosque, which is uh, very interesting. And the Mount of Olives uh, is about three or 400 feet above Jerusalem, looking down there where we're, uh, the temple was. And it says that they were told to that, that they went a Sabbath day journey back to Jerusalem. Now, that what does that mean to you and me? That This probably doesn't mean that this was on the Sabbath day, but it is this is an interesting little trivia tidbit here, made the Bible... Uh, that the Jewish rabbis, to keep people from not observing the Sabbath, had told them that you can walk 2,000 cubics from your, your home. That's all you can walk. If you walk 2,001, then you have worked on the Sabbath and broken the law. Now, by the way, that's not found anywhere in the Bible. That's just, you know, have you ever noticed we like to add stuff to the Bible all the time? And they, they certainly did that. That was probably about three-fourths of a mile. So they're about three-fourths of a mile, which that would have been from Bethany back to where they were staying. And they're going back to Jerusalem. Now, here's another little interesting thing. These, certainly the 11 disciples were in this group. They were all from Galilee. You go, what does that have to do with the price of eggs in China? Probably nothing. But Galilee, remember, in Jesus' day, the Holy Land was divided in two areas. Galilee's in the north. And Judea, where Jerusalem is, is in the south. And the, the Judeans and Jerusalem considered themselves better than the Galileans. The Galileans were more country. They were more Louisiana. You know, they were more homespun. And they couldn't get to the temple as much. They weren't as kosher. They were a little more redneck. And so uh, the Galileans probably didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. By the way, their, their king had just been arrested and crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, we know he walked out of the tomb, but they're still kind of a hot commodity uh, being Jewish Christians following this Jesus. So going back to Jerusalem was probably not a super exciting thing for them in some ways, but they went. What did Jesus tell them to do when he got there? He told them to wait. Now, they don't know how long, but it's not going to be a, a terribly long time that they're going to see the the next most incredible thing after the death and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, World evangelism is fixing to start there in Jerusalem. They don't know that for sure. 
They had just experienced in the last month and a half the most incredible things you can imagine. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that week before he was crucified or the week he was crucified, all the things that had happened. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He's arrested. He's brutally murdered. And then he walks out of the tomb. And then they got to spend 40 days seeing him and visiting with him. And now he's gone back to heaven. All these great things And now they're told to go wait. Are you following me? Let me me tell you something I think is really interesting. Maybe God knew they needed a breather. Maybe God's got you in a holding pattern right now because he knows you need a breather. You know what a holding pattern is in an airplane? It's very frustrating when you get to the airport and you can't land. And so, I don't know, they ought to call it a circling pattern, but they call it a holding pattern where you circle around and all you can see is the airport where you're supposed to be and you're missing your next flight right now because you're circling the airport. But he put them on a holding pattern. The greatest, listen, some of the greatest, well, the absolute greatest ministries they're ever going to be involved with are fixing to happen. And right before they happen, what does Jesus do? He puts them on a waiting pattern, a holding pattern. What was the important thing for them to do right off the bat? It was to obey God. Some of you right now, Jesus may be telling you to do something, and whatever he's telling you to do, you're going, I want to go win the world. I want to go change things. I want to go make a difference. And Jesus is saying, I want you to sit and be still and wait right now. Some of you are exhausted, and Jesus may be telling you, you need to sit and wait right now. Whether you're there or whether you're going to be there, let me tell you this. When you hit that wait part in your life, and you're not hearing from God, or what you're hearing from God, you don't like what you're hearing from God, and he's telling you to wait. Number one, you obey him. You wait. And what do you do while you're waiting? See, a lot of people get in trouble here when you're waiting for God. A lot of people get in trouble, throw in the towel. The first thing you do is you obey him by waiting, and then you obey him in everything he's telling you to do. See, some of us are waiting on God to do something supernatural in our life or to use us in some supernatural big way, and we're just not obeying Him day in and day out. Obey God. Well, I'm tired of waiting. I'm frustrated of running in place. What do I do? You obey God. Listen, we live in a quick-fix society, don't we? I read an article this week. It was by a professor named Dr. Jeffrey Zachs at Washington University in, in uh, St. Louis, And he said, we're all looking for the quick fix. We want the weight loss pill. Amen. Don't you want it? You can eat anything you want, lose 50 pounds a week. Amen. Don't you want it? Brother, let's get it. I'll buy it with you. We want the the, the smart pill. I'm seeing this pill advertised. It's going to make you a genius. I'd buy that and I'd get the fat pill too, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be great? I'd be skinny and smart. They have these new games on the internet called Luminosity. How many of you have heard of them? By the way, the Luminosity people are, have just worked out a deal with the Federal Drug Administration because they haven't been truthful in their advertising. You play this tic-tac-toe on the computer and you're going to raise your IQ 50 points. Well, sounds good. It's just not true. And what Dr. Zach said is we're looking for a quick fix and quick fixes are mostly fiction. Sometimes God has to put us on hold or in a waiting pattern 
to get us in a position for the next great things. Sometimes he put us in that wait spot so we can recover from the last things or the traumas that we've gone through. But I want to tell you, when you find yourself there, some of you are there tonight, some of you are going to be there. What do you do? You obey God. If God's telling you to wait, you wait. While you're waiting, you obey God. You do what he's telling you to do. You live for him. You put him first. What he lays on your heart and your mind, you obey God. See, what they couldn't see and what you and I can't see was chapter 2 of Acts. We can see it now. They couldn't. But beyond their wait was some tremendous things. But they had to wait and wait properly first. When you find yourself waiting, obey God. Here's the second thing. Stay strongly connected with your church and with your Christian family. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you find yourself waiting and frustrated? I want to encourage you this, and, and this is obviously, these things apply. If you're not in that waiting pattern tonight, you stay st- strongly connected with your church family and your Christian family. In verse 13, it says, when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. I want to show you a picture of what we believe is the upper room today. Cindy, you remember going there? And I'm going to tell you a story in a few weeks about what we experienced at the upper room when we were in Jerusalem that was, uh, that was, that was pretty interesting to say the least. Was this the upper room where the Lord's Supper happened? It may have been. Was it uh, where the Holy Spirit was fixing to descend in Acts chapter 2? Possibly. It may have been a, uh, a, a room in a house owned by John Mark. It's interesting. Archaeologists in recent years have found around the temple area uh, in digs, they found ruins of old homes that date back to Jesus' day of wealthy people who had multi-level homes. And in those homes, they can tell they had lower level, uh, a lower floor, and then they had big upper rooms. Isn't that neat? Isn't it good to see? We believe the Bible, period, but isn't it nice to get that validation uh, of those things? You see in this here, in this, they went to the upper room. Who went? Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphas, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. There's one missing. Did you notice that? That was the other Judas Iscariot who we will talk about in a few weeks. Were they living here right now? They may have been. They, they, some of them may have been because they were from Galilee and they're in Jerusalem. Jesus has told them to stay. Look in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Here's a neat little fact. God used Luke to write the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke chapter 1 begins with Mary and Acts chapter 1 begins with Mary. This is the last place in the Bible that Mary is ever mentioned. It says here Jesus' brothers. Now, there is uh, there's some, some even Christian religious people that believe Mary was a perpetual virgin. If you don't know what that means, we believe Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, the virgin birth, but we believe that she had other children, which the Bible, I believe, even states here after Jesus was born. These were Jesus' brothers who were not Christians before the resurrection. Isn't that neat? And, and they're fixing to become world changers along with uh, the rest of the group. Folks, I want to tell you, what were they doing in the upper room? I believe they were having church, as we would know it in many ways. It doesn't say in the text, but I want to tell you, I believe they were singing. I believe there were too many preachers there for there not to have preaching. 
and good preaching too, different from what you're used to. And, and they were discussing and debating and encouraging and they were praying. They were having church. You know, isn't it neat to see one of the things they did in their holding pattern and their waiting pattern is, man, they dug in in fellowship with other Christians. Folks, here's your tendency. When you get frustrated with God, when you feel like God's put you on hold and you're waiting and you're not seeing anything happen, the devil starts whispering, whispering in your ear, back off. Why are you obeying God so hard? And I'm telling you, you obey God. And the devil starts whispering, why are you going to church so much? You don't get that much out of it anyway. You know, you don't like the songs. The sermons are okay. The Sunday school class is okay. And so you start pulling out. Let me tell you what I've seen. In 30 years as a pastor, I've never one time, never one time seen anybody who loosened up their church attendance who got closer to God. I've never seen it. In fact, I'll say just the opposite. People I've watched who were faithful in church, who backed off, and you didn't see them as much, you didn't see them as much, you didn't see them as much. Every single time their walk with God decreased, it didn't increase. What do you do in your holding pattern? What do you do when you find yourself in the, the, the weight areas of life? Man, you dig in with the people of God. You dig in with your small group, with your Sunday school connection group, your discipleship group, you dig in with your church family. Harvard did a 72-year study. How do you do a 72-year study? Your professors are eight when they started, I guess. I don't know. But they did a 72-year study on happiness. Now, they didn't include the God side of it, which we know is the ultimate key. But what they found from a human perspective, that the number one thing after God... The number one key to your happiness is your relationships with other people. Folks, God created us to be with one another. He absolutely did. Daniel Goleman is a, is a researcher. Daniel Goleman said, in neuroscience, we are finding out our brains are hardwired to be sociable. We're hardwired. We need one another. I want to encourage you. Whether you're in a waiting period or not, you don't back off on your involvement in church. You don't back off in your, with your involvement with the people of God. That whisper in your ear to do so is not the whisper of God. One of the things they did is they waited on God is they were communicating and communing with one another as a, and really as a church family. Let me give you a third thing, which I think is so neat in here too. Make your church and your God circles better. Make your church and your God circles better. In other words, don't just show up. Make a commitment that it's going to be better because of you. You go, you know, I'm waiting on God. I don't know what to do right now in my life. Or maybe you're not waiting on God. You just don't know what to do with your life. Maybe you're disgruntled with our church or your church or your connection group or whatever it is. Let me tell you what, make it better. Make it better. In verse 13, I'm not going to read that, but that, listen, that's 11 powerful men. They spent regular time in the presence of Christ, who, by the way, can read your mind and knows what you're thinking and saying. Talking about who was the greatest. Talking about who was going to be the greatest when they got to heaven. These weren't passive people. 
Simon, it says, was zealous, a zealot. That, that meant that he was a part of a group that was antagonistic against Rome. Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. Normally, these guys wouldn't be in the same room together. Jesus saved them, changed their hearts. Now they're brothers. But it says, and look in verse 14, all these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. One accord is a phrase that's used in Acts frequently. It, it, it means of one mind and one heart. Folks, we're told in, in Paul's letters that as Christians, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here's something else we have. We have one another. We have one body, and we, we have many churches that meet in, in different places. We're still one body. But it, it's so neat when you see this. These guys, these leaders... They, they, weren't, they weren't angling to see who was going to be the head. They weren't kicking each other. Hey, Peter, you want to be the leader, and you deny Jesus three times, you loser. Thomas, the doubter, <laughs> every one of them abandoned Jesus at his most crucial time. But you didn't see that at this point. Let me ask you a question. Is, is First Baptist, or if you go to another church, is it better because you're a part of it? Are you a unifier? Now, there's a uniformity and, and unity are two different things. Uniformity means we dress alike, we look alike, and we smell alike. That's not what God calls for. God calls for unity, a oneness and purpose and spirit and heart. You say, well, I don't know what to do at this point in my spiritual journey. Let me give you a great concept to get a hold of. If this is your church or wherever is your church, God's not called you to be the policeman or the policewoman. God's not called you to be the, the rebuker. God's called you to be a unifier. God's called you to make us better. God's called you to make your connection group class happier and healthier and more unified. You say, well, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm giving you a purpose. You find the church, you get in it, and you make it better. That's one of the things these guys were doing during their waiting period. And I want to give you one last thought, and that's pray and pray and pray some more. You go, I'm waiting. I'm tired of waiting. What do I do? Look in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. The word devote there means to endure faithfully. There's several words in the Bible used for prayer. We're going to look at several of them Sunday morning. This word here means you're asking for a particular benefit our request. Do I believe they were having church? Absolutely. I believe they were singing. I believe they were preaching. They were testifying. They were discussing. Knowing those 11 men and that were in the group, they were arguing the Bible some. But the only thing the Scriptures tell us specifically is that they were praying. You notice that? You know about Jesus, when the, the disciples came to Jesus, they didn't ask Jesus, teach us how to preach. They didn't even teach us how to heal, teach us how to make 50 Big Macs out of one. They said, teach us how to pray because they zoned in, and apparently we're getting it now, that this was the most important thing they could do. You know, I'd just say as a church, what a lesson here for us. I think many of you know it, but, but on Tuesdays from 12 to 1, 
Our church staff comes in here. We spread out around the sanctuary, and we pray for an hour. We come back on Wednesday morning from 8 to 9. You're welcome to do it. If there's anything our church ought to be known for, it ought to be love and prayer. We ought to be a prayer-conditioned church, shouldn't we? Louisiana, we need to be air-conditioned, but we need to be prayer-conditioned too. Some of you are wondering, how can I make a difference? What do I need to be doing? i tell you something everybody in this room can do, and that's pray. I heard this several years ago, and it's challenging. I hope it convicts you. But I heard a person say, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, you ought to be spending at least an hour a day in prayer. And they went on to explain about how a person first gets saved and they learn to pray. They pray five or ten minutes a day, and that's pretty much maxed out. But after you've been a Christian three or four years and your prayer life grows, you go to 15 or 20, and at 10 years, you're at 20 or 30, and 15, 40, or 45. And how do you match up with that, Christian? You've been a Christian for 15, 20, 30, 40 years. They devoted themselves to prayer to praising God, to thanking God for asking for strength. You see, we're, we're devoted to, to worry. We're devoted to trying to figure things out. We're, we're devoted to debating and arguing. The thing that's going to change your life and my life, change our church and change our country is praying. And, and I want to tell you, I thought about this this week. When I learned to pray the truest and the most, the, probably the most definitive time in my life that taught me how to pray, was in 1983. I was one years old. Y'all are really asleep tonight. I was not. I was 20. And it was in a terrible waiting period in my life. I didn't feel God. I didn't sense God. I had no direction. All I knew is all I had was God. And it was during those months of my life that God really taught me how to pray. What do you do in your waiting period? Well, you can whine, you can complain, you can quit church, or you can cowboy up, as they like to say in West Texas, and you can pray, and you can pray, and you can pray. There was a study done several years ago at one of the big, there's two big airports in Houston, and the study didn't say, but it was about waiting. And what was happening was that people were getting to the baggage claim from their terminals quickly and then having to wait 8 to 10 minutes for their luggage. And, and, and the airport was getting just tons of complaints about this. So they said, well, we'll hire more baggage handlers. And they cut down the wait actually to about 8 or 9 minutes, but still people were complaining unbelievably. And then they, they found out what they needed to do. They actually, and of course, this had to take place over an extended period, but they moved the baggage claim to a different part of the airport where you had a long walk from your terminal to get your luggage. And what they found out was people were a lot happier because now they were walking. This is how dumb we are. We're walking 10 minutes more, but we're only having to wait one minute at the carousel for our luggage. And they asked an expert. There's actually a world-leading expert in waiting. Wouldn't you like to talk to that guy? His name's Dr. Richard Larson at MIT. And Dr. Larson explained this. He said, it's not the wait that drives us crazy. It's not having anything to do while we wait that drives us crazy. And that if people can be occupied with something productive while they're waiting, 
are they thinks productive, then, then the weight doesn't seem to affect them near as negatively. Listen, you're waiting on God. Some of you are tonight, you're all cool. You will be waiting on God. Occupy yourself with the right things. Obey God in every area of your life. Stay plugged in with God's people. Make your church or your religious organizations better and learn to pray and pray and pray. See, if we're occupied with the right things during the waiting period, then we're going to be prepared for the right things when the waiting period is over. So this evening, I ask you, as I ask you at the end of every sermon, what do you need to do tonight with this? Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a believer or you're unsure if you're a believer. You need to give your life to Christ. You've got an opportunity tonight you may not have tomorrow. When we stand, you come. Let us help you give your life to Christ. You're here and you'd like to join the church. We'd love for you to. You can come when we stand or you can catch us after church. We'd love for you to join us. Christians, some of you I know are in a waiting period. Maybe you'd like to come and let us pray with you or you pray at the altar. Others of you, maybe you're not, but man, you need to tighten up on your prayer life and on your commitment to Christ and on the right things. Let's stand. As God leads you, you come. We'll be waiting on you.